Welcome back to Presidents in Politics. I'm your host, Caleb McGee, and I am joined by my co-host, uh, former Congressman Ross. And today we are on the fourth president. We are on James Madison. What a guy. Uh, what a guy, right? And and we, we always kind of talk about their physical appearance some, so we, we'd be amiss to, to speak on Madison. Smallest U.S. president that's ever been. Probably one of the smallest humans <laughs> ever been. 5'2 to 5'4, and it was said he never broke 100 pounds. Yeah. I mean, we're both big Southern boys. That's like, you know, our leg, <laughs> right? Um, and it was also said that his nose was, was scarred from frostbite. So... Physically, he, he doesn't look like much. Physically, there's not a whole lot of strength there, but he makes up for it with his mind. Absolutely. Wow. I mean, this guy, not, you know, they call him the father of the Constitution for a very good reason, but his depth of understanding oh. of governments and, and how men should govern is incredible. I mean, yes. without him, we would have, we've talked about the other president, each one has their particular role. That fortunately they came about at the time they did. And we have to say the same thing about James Madison. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was at a crucial time, again, flawed, oh. with faults. Yes. But a brilliant man who was determined to see that this new constitution, that this idea in self-government <laughs> would come to fruition and sustain itself. Yes. And I know we've talked about this a lot, but I like what you said as far as a man for time. That's been kind of a recurring theme throughout this podcast. And I think that's important because yes. that's the history of America. Yes. You see God's providential hand. I mean, think about when Washington comes to power, it's almost like Saul coming to power in Israel, this, this tall, yeah. strapping military man to kind of pull the sides together, right? Yeah. Like we're coming out of war, we need a military commander. And then we go from that to Adams. Yeah. So different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so incredibly different. But he kind of unifies, and he's the diplomat when it's needed in France with, of course, the XYZ affair and all right. that takes place. He kind of smooths things out, gets it back on. Then we have Jefferson. Jefferson, that brilliant mind. Kind of he's an in-between, right? He's that tall, strapping, kind of like a Washington Adams in a blender. Yeah. And then fourth president, we come into Madison, and he's kind of his own thing. Madison is by far his own thing. And, yes. you know, he was probably incredibly introverted. Yeah, oh, very much so. But he also knew that if he didn't get involved, you know, he tried to do the militia and he just mm. couldn't make it because of his stature and yes. his size. Yes, And And then he goes and he becomes part of the first legislature in, in Virginia to help write their independence from Great Britain. Mm. And, and, and that then leads to becoming part of the first Continental Congress. Yes. I mean, this guy... And he's the youngest member of the Continental yes, Congress. Yes, he's the youngest, youngest member. member. And, and he does what he needs to do in drafting. But he also realizes that that after the Revolution, with the Articles of Confederation, that it's not working. No. I mean, Madison, you, you've got no. the dispute between, uh, I guess it was between Maryland and Virginia yes. over to how to, you know, the Potomac River and who's, mm -hmm. because the Articles of Confederation basically set up states as separate countries. It's with, like little tribes. Yeah, they're little tribes. Yeah. No common currency, yeah. no, no, no uh, militia, common militia and everything. And so Madison decided decides that he wants to have this, you know, addressed. And I believe he has, I don't know if it's John Tyler, who he call, has called for the Annapolis Convention mm -hmm. in 1786, mm -hmm. where we're all going to, all the states are going to meet in Annapolis and, and get this resolved. Mm -hmm. Well, nobody shows up, you know, I mean, it's just one of those, uh-huh, you know, we, everybody's too busy trying to take care of their own little mm -hmm. territory. But his persistence pays off. Yeah, and one thing that's interesting that I've really always found in Madison the more I study him is he is a, he's a dichotomy in many ways. Yeah. But one of the ways he's a dichotomy is he's, he's kind of a merger between Federalist and Jeffersonian Republicans, right? Like, he starts as a Federalist. He starts as, well... Like, hardcore. He writes the Federalist Papers with Hamilton yeah. and John Jay. Like, he is a hardcore Federalist, yeah. but then he becomes Secretary of State under Jefferson, picks up some of those ideas of states' rights, and now he's trying to merge this. And maybe, again, maybe that's why he is the man for the time, because he can identify with the Federalist 
but then now he can also sympathize with the Jeffersonian Republicans. And I don't really know by the end of his life where he would have. I don't either. What camp he would have fallen in? I don't either. When you look at his history, I mean, let's 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 start right there with the with the Constitution. When when he calls for and, and has Congress uh, call for the Constitutional Convention in 1787, he shows up 11 days early. Yes. He lays the groundwork and writes the agenda so that he, nobody can get outside what he's going to do. Does he write the agenda? Yes. But his depth of knowledge. Again, we've talked about all these founders having that broad yes. breadth of education that that really they weren't narrow they weren't no. in a silo and he studied governments yes and he not only did the agenda but when they had the constitutional convention he's the only one that kept notes of the debate that's right and and as a result of what happened he in fact he introduced the virginia plan which was the, mm-hmm. the, the three branches of government mm-hmm. i mean it went through a debate and whatnot mm-hmm. to get where we are today but to think that he was so far ahead in thinking that this is what we're going to do and it actually happened. And then to be the recorder of events inside the Constitutional Convention, because they were locked in there. That's right. And and he didn't want those notes to be disclosed for 50 years because he didn't want people to think that it should be going a certain way. They should have to resolve it themselves. Yeah. And actually, those notes became confidential. And, of course, yes. Washington's there. And there's the story told. Um, there's the, the, and, again, it's, it's pretty well documented that one of the individuals dropped one of the notes on the floor and went to walk away, leaving the note on the floor. And when they did, Washington stood from his chair and turned, and the whole room just fell silent, right? Because Washington had that <laughs> presence, that. Yeah, oh, yeah. right? So they, they quickly pick it up, and that was like the the unspoken word that these notes will be... Per- it's almost like the dad who shoots the look, right? Yes. And Washington kind of does that, and the whole room kind of quiets down, like, we better it. be careful about that. So it. like you said, these notes are locked up, and they don't want them released until all those founding members have died, which yes. is an interesting thought. It is. I guess this kind of sets the precedence for classified documents in the government, maybe. Yeah, in a way, it could be. It yeah. could be. You know. You know. Yeah. But he. Um, what, what, what's what, What's interesting about him is that after they get this done, and and they're trying to get the states to ratify it, and they're <laughs> like, "What? What is this? What is this?" And yes. so that's what they do. They yes. write the federal. Yes. This is the first, I think, major propaganda uh, campaign. Good way to put it. To, to you know, they're doing their own press. <laughs> they're they're saying this is why the Constitution's good. This is what we mean by doing this, mm-hmm. and and they convince enough of the states to ratify it by seventeen eighty eight. And of course, Madison's greatest opponent with the Constitution was Patrick Henry. Yes, and Patrick Henry there has been few men as eloquent of a speaker as Henry, right? Yeah. Uh, he grew up in the, during the Great Awakening, hearing the, the preaching, and he takes a lot of that like evangelical fire, and he puts in his rhetoric towards America, which is one of the reasons why he was called the tongue of the revolution, <laughs> right? So as he debates Madison, Madison cannot stay up with him verbally for a moment, right? right. Again, Madison's a small little guy. It was said of him that you couldn't really hear him pass the fourth row. <laughs> in fact, a lot of times his secretaries would complain they couldn't even keep up with him to write what he was saying because he's just so soft-spoken and diminutive. Wow. Um, and then you have Henry going against him. And so Henry's destroying him verbally. However, Madison is so brilliant with the Federalist Papers and his writings. Uh, that undermines, keep, it undermines uh, the oratory of uh, exactly. Of, of play. Uh, 100%. Patrick Henry, I'm sorry. 100%. Yeah. Um, and again, as you talk about his mind, he's actually the first president who ever did graduate studies. So he completes his education at Princeton in two years. Yeah. And then he stays and does an additional year of research in Hebrew and philosophy with a Witherspoon. That. Witherspoon, of course, being that great American yeah. thinker who you know founded Princeton and just a great, great mind in himself. So he's actually the first U.S. president who had graduate work. Now, they didn't award a master's degree back then. Right. But he's really the first who has graduate work underneath his belt. Maybe that's one of the reasons why he's got this brilliant mind. Um, and again, I love the psychology of leadership that he's there, like you said, 11 days early. And he even writes the agenda. Like, basically, we're going to get control of this early on of where this right. is going to go. It's an interesting tactic. There's some uh, some psychological warfare there. Oh, yeah. And in he, a way. I, I, he's, he's so forward thinking. Yes. That he, he knows where if he does it this way, then people will go this way. If this, then that. And that's how he captures yes. the, the, the agenda and is able to get through what he needs to get through. Yes. Um, 
and and then you know then after the well, the 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 um, anti-federalists who were against the 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 Constitution wanted a Bill of Rights. Yeah, that's right. And Madison says, no, we don't need a Bill of Rights. You know, as you put it, you're the scholar. You know, <laughs> uh, the, the the Bill of Rights were not necessary in his eyes. Yeah, his eyes were if we give a Bill of Rights, the insinuation is the government is the one who has the ability to give these rights. Right. And Madison doesn't like that. He's saying we don't need to even let the government think they have these rights. So when he they begin to craft this, if you read the Bill of Rights, and I know you have many times, it, it look at the language, look at the art and the poetry. These are these are inalienable rights. The government's going to recognize them. It's not the government's ever granting them or right. giving them. They're simply recognizing. It goes all the way back to these 1700s Enlightenment thinkers. You know John Locke and the other. We are born with natural law and rights. We're born with inalienable rights, and the government never takes them. They simply recognize them. Right. And again, Madison's cut his teeth on these thinkers. Right. Oh, it's, it's, it's incredible. In fact, when they do have the first Congress, it's Madison that introduces the Bill of Rights. Yes. And what's amazing to me is that, that he introduces 20, <laughs> 20 amendments to the Constitution, mm -hmm. which then um, is riddled down to 17 by the House. Mm -hmm. it's, it's sent over to the Senate, and the Senate then adopts and passes out 12 amendments, mm -hmm. which are then offered for ratification mm -hmm. to the several states. And... Only 10 pass. Yeah. And two didn't. The first yes. two didn't. Yes. Until such time as the 27th Amendment passed, which mm -hmm. I, I just want to talk about this because yes, I think it's a very do. illustrative of how dynamic and fluid our government still is. You know, one of the amendments that they that they wanted to, that the, that the Congress passed that wasn't adopted was the uh, proportionate representation, which today mm -hmm. would probably have, uh, you know, 1,500, 2,000 members of Congress if that was passed. Thank goodness we don't have that. It's 435 <laughs> that's, in that's one scary. chamber. That's scary. Yeah, it's very scary. Mm, yeah, but goodness. the other one had to deal with the, uh, the, the the Congress's ability to raise their pay. Yeah. And it basically said that they cannot raise their pay. It must be done. Co compensation must be adjusted by a succeeding or other Congress. Yeah. Well, that sat out there for 200 some years until a, a college student by the name of, I think it was Gregory Watson at the University of Texas in 1982 for a research paper went out there and said, hey, this amendment is still alive. It has been passed by Congress, and it was ratified by a couple of states, so it's still alive. Wow. And his, his professor said, no, you know what? That's nice, but no. That <laughs> doesn't really matter. Welcome Here's to higher C. education. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah, welcome Here's to higher C. education. Well, he takes it a cause, the cause upon himself and goes out there and starts advocating other state legislatures. Wow. Other legislatures then begin, and in 1992, it passes. It's the 27th Amendment. I've not that heard That was the story. introduced in, in, by, by James Madison, you know, and, but it took 200 and some years. Fortunately for this student, who would now, in his on in his career, the University of Texas retroactively awarded him an A. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's fascinating. That shows yes. you that Madison was that forward-thinking, too. Yes. But it took 200-some years to actually have it come to fruition. Which, some of these things are such common sense. Can you imagine in any other vocation, you decide if you're going to get a raise or not? I, mean, I know. How, can you imagine as a professor? You know, I'm doing a great job. I killed it this semester. Yeah. Let's do a 50% raise. Yeah. <laughs> We don't all become professors. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, what other vacation can you do that in where you get to choose your You're salary? Right. So, right. again, some of these things are common sense, and it's 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 kind of uh, comical that it took that long. But in all reality, it shows the danger of power. It when does. you start getting power, to release that power is... Interesting. You know, that also came up when I was in Congress. We, uh, we were having the... Um, uh, budget Control Act, and we had to raise the debt ceiling, and we had to uh, pass a budget. And one of the proposals was that Congress's pay would be suspended so long as the debt ceiling wasn't raised. And the, the, they, they, the, the parliamentarian came back and said, "It's unconstitutional. You can't, <laughs> you can't even lower your pay, your own wow. pay, or not take it." 
Wow. That's a, that, that was a kind of a reverse of the 27th Amendment. Again, wow. was, was J- Madison that forward thinking? He might have been. Could have been. Yes. One of the things I found really interesting is that he, uh, of course, works for Washington. Doesn't really get much of an official post at first, right. but he's one of Washington's top advisors. And I remember reading the story early on in my, in my history career that Washington's first aide who wrote his inaugural address. So George Washington's going to stand up and get the very first yes. inaugural address. He writes a 78-page yes. monstrosity. <laughs> Can you imagine the president standing up and reading 78 pages? Yeah. I mean, I'm glad we didn't keep that tradition alive. No kidding. Washington looks at this in his, you know, stone-faced way and just kind of throws it back at the aide and then turns to Madison and said, write me something. Yes. And Madison writes the first inaugural address, which, of course, is very famous. Washington sets the precedence, and he does an amazing job. That first inaugural address, if you haven't read it, please go read it. It's an amazing, amazing document. But his first aide, 78 pages. I can't believe Seven, and you can just, I, I just wish I could have been there like a fly on the wall. Wow. Could you have seen like Washington's face like thumbing through 78 pages of no. an inaugural address? And yeah, this, or, this or the audience even oh. enduring that would oh. be amazing. Good Lord. But you know, I, got, I also want to talk about because, in, in deference to my wife, who was a great Dolly Madison fan, <laughs> uh, she is the quintessential first lady. She, in fact, she, she is. essentially establishes the yes. role of the first lady. Agreed. And she is, she's what, 16, 17 uh, years 20 younger? 20 years, isn't she? I believe she's 20 years younger, younger than him. Yeah. So, and yes. she's a widow with a son. Mm-hmm. And he's 46 years old, I guess, when he marries. Mm-hmm. And uh, she is a dynamo. Oh, yes. I mean, she she is a, a hospitality queen. Yes. She takes over. She does, as uh, I believe she did uh, ice cream socials in, yes. the, in the White House. Yes. She would have uh, soirees. She would. She did the first people. inaugural ball. Of course, yes. she was the very first to throw the first inaugural yes. ball. I remember reading through this early on, and one of the things that made it interesting was, as you well know, D.C. is very humid this summer. Uh, yes. Nobody wanted it there, right? They, they wanted right. uh, Philadelphia, and then they wanted New, uh, York. Where, New York, and then they wanted, where was, uh, Baltimore. A lot, of, yeah. a lot of them wanted Baltimore. So they call D.C. the swamp, as you know. And early on, a lot of members of Congress stayed in boarding houses, yes. almost like barracks. So they're there. It's hot. It's muggy. You're stuck with a bunch of other guys you don't really want to be with. And then now Dolly Mattis would open their house, and she'd have these ice cream socials, and she would have food and music. And really, she made her husband endeared to the members of Congress. Absolutely. Uh, maybe presidents should try that again. Uh, uh, there's a good there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, imagine a, that. But, the executive branch, the legislative branch, being able to get along. Um, and, and we'll get into this in just a minute. But one of the things I want to just point out about Dolly Madison that my wife always pointed out, my wife would give uh, tours of the White House when I was in Congress. I mean, she'd do it several times a week. But she would always point to the picture, the portrait of George Washington. Yes, that was I like Gilbert Stewart. This. Gilbert Stewart painted that, and it hung in the um, in the in the East Room of the yes. White House. And when the British uh, invaded Washington D.C. and started to burn the Capitol, yes. Library of Congress, and the yes. White House, she had it removed and mm-hmm. preserved just before the British yes. stayed behind to make sure it was done, yes. and got some documents as well. Yes, she was a hero, a, man. That was amazing. Yes. I mean, that, yes, that's the kind of partnership you want to see. Yes. She in, was a, a picture presidency. of strength. Mm-hmm. And she was also beautiful. Madison yes. speaking about her talked about her her long black hair, her blue eyes, her ruby red lips. I mean, she yeah. was she caught the eye of people yeah. in a room. But she wasn't just a pretty face. She was a brilliant mind. Very much so. And then she had a fearless heart. Again, the idea of st- I mean like 1814, I believe it's what, August 1814, yes. D.C.'s burning, and she's staying behind in order to try to start getting things. Like, she is there in the thick of it. She's yeah. not running. She's not cowardly. She's showing this idea of strength, but she's strength under under, under beauty, really. So yes. just what a model of the first lady oh, yeah. in, in so many ways. Made a great team. They yes, made they a great did. Team. Yes, they did. And, and we're talking about the burning of D.C. I know we're kind of getting ahead here. One of my favorite stories about Madison, because— He's not a, a large man. He's no. not a military man. No. He 
I mean, I, I'm pretty sure you and I both were probably his size when we were like 10. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the things I really, really like about Madison is it said that when he, he hears about his troops and he knows they're, they're struggling in D.C., he asked the Secretary of Finance, I believe it was, I think it was the Secretary of Finance, he asked, uh, uh, Secretary of the Treasury, he asked the Secretary of the Treasury if he's got weapons. And they hand him a pair of dueling pistols. And he straps on and he starts riding to his men to try to rally the troops. <laughs> I, I would have loved to see this, right? I would have loved to see this little five foot tall, 100 pound oh, guy gosh. on a horse with dueling pistols on his side. Oh, you're somebody Sam. I, and, <laughs> that's, that's what it looked like. And he's riding to rally the troops. Now, once he got there, he realized that the, the British were way too close and he kind of gets his men and they all kind of retreat, really. Right. But still, that heart, uh, that heart yeah. of flame that he had, yeah. um, it was said that he tried to, to better his body. He was very sick. A lot of modern scholars think he could have had epilepsy or something of that nature. That's true. But he tried to better his body through exercise, much like Teddy Roosevelt. And again, it was the idea of voluntary hardship. He made himself do hard things. Yeah, he did. I cannot imagine with his ailments, with his body, with the problems DC is about to be burned, how many politicians in today's time would have run into it. Yeah. Yeah. He grabs pistols and he rides into it. And maybe that's why him and his wife had these similar hearts of trying to protect yeah. and Amazing team. Yeah, they, they really team. were. It's not the size of the, the dog in the fight. It's the, fight, the size of the fight in the dog. There you and, go. Use the, the southern term. He had some, uh, some yeah. spit in his eye and some gravel in his exactly. gut. Exactly. Yeah. I and, mean, but speaking of that, the War of 1812 didn't have to happen. No, it did not. In fact, there was, I believe it was an embargo under the Jefferson mm -hmm. administration that they that, that the U.S. Uh, uh, imposed on France and, and yes. Great Britain because they were at war and... That came back to haunt, um, uh, you know, they didn't, they, France and Britain didn't really care about buying American goods and Americans didn't have any way of selling their mm -hmm. goods and it was hurting our economy. So then Jefferson, you know, rescinds the embargo and Madison becomes president. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and he steps into a hornet's nest. He steps into, he didn't want war, but no. then he realized, you know, they were starting to. Uh, Shanghai and people. Yeah. Our, our, <laughs> the Navy, our, our Navy seamen and, and, yeah. um. I mean, can you conscript I, them into the British Navy? I always tell my, my students when, when, I, when I teach this, can you imagine in today's time if, let's say, uh, out of uh, what's the Navy base in Jacksonville? It's yeah, uh, NAS, the okay, Naval Can you Naval imagine if, if a ship pulls out and a British ship pulls up, takes our ship, takes our men, and then just says, we're still friends, but we need your, your men and your ship for right now? Right. Can you imagine how that would go over like in today's time? And that's what they were doing. They were commandeering our ships, they were taking our men, and then we were just supposed to, to play along with it. Yeah. I mean that, and the Federalists it. didn't didn't really want to get involved. No, in fact, they they called it Madison's War, <laughs> you know, and 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 they weren't very supportive, which is probably no. one of the reasons why we didn't have a militia or an army ready to. Mm -hmm. to and, and here we are being invaded. Mm -hmm. Now let's face it: if we didn't have the War of eighteen twelve, we wouldn't have the national anthem. Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> that's right. Francis Scott Key, of course, as yeah. he writes this, as he pins this, as he's in a prison ship. Yep. And um, it brings a whole new uh, level of kind of reverence to it when you hear it, doesn't it? Does. He's, he's hanging there just hoping he's going to be able to see the daylight. And there, he, through the bomb's red glare, yeah, able to yeah. see the... Yeah, he, he drafts this song. Yes, yes. But you get to, you know, here we have the invasion of Washington, D.C. The mm. Library of Congress is burning. The, the Capitol, the White House, and the president retreats. But it becomes a stalemate. Yes, you know both countries all realize they just can't keep doing this. Yes. So they what was it the the, the Treaty of Ghent? Treaty of Ghent. That's correct. That they that they, um, that they sign, and suddenly the war's over. <laughs> but down in New Orleans, they don't know that. That's right. And then in comes a guy, Jackson. <laughs> oh, Jackson. What a, what a uh, <laughs> the war is over, but nobody in Louisiana knows Oops. it. 
It's the it, South. It's, it's exactly. <laughs> it's Even Louisiana, if it is over. Florida, Mississippi, what do you <laughs> yeah. expect? Right? We're gonna we're gonna fight this. We're thing gonna fight with anyway. And so he gets he gets his victory on behalf yes. of the United States. And suddenly it, it no longer becomes Madison's war. It becomes you know America's great victory yes. against 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 yes. Britain again. And Battle it, of and, New Orleans. Yes, and <laughs> it becomes a legend. Yes, songs. Yes, yeah, just stories. There's so many folk. I don't know if you've ever listened to some of the old like folk music uh, that's been sung in Louisiana of the, of the Battle of New Orleans. It's it's a uh, it's interesting. Oh, I bet it is. Yeah. But again, Madison comes out on top. Over he does. It. And 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 it has, he actually will leave the White House after eight years with very high favorable numbers, yeah. polling numbers. And I'm trying to think as far as in modern presidents, and you can correct me here, who the last president would have been that left the White House after eight years and had positive numbers. Hmm. Uh, you know, probably Reagan. That's what I was thinking. I was probably kind of sticking Reagan. on Reagan, which was, yeah. what, 88? He left in 88? Yeah. Yes. So Reagan leaving 88, maybe that's the last time that a president stayed two terms and actually yeah. still had favorable Yeah, George H.W. Bush probably would have been, but he only served the one term. And, and Read my lips, no new taxes. Yeah. Oh, whatever. Yeah, we'll talk about that <laughs> yeah, one day. We'll save that for down the road, right? Yes. One of the, one of the statements, the quotes made about um, Madison, I really like this. I, I think this goes to something you and I talked about. Uh, this was actually given by the tre- uh, Treasury Secretary, Albert Galton. He's the guy who gave him the pistols. But later, speaking about Madison, he said this, Mr. Madison is slow in talking, slow in talking, and he's slow in taking his ground, but firm when storms arise. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. That, that kind of typifies in many ways Madison. He was not eloquent in tongue, very eloquent in pen. He was very calculating. But when he finally stood his ground, it, it meant something. And I think that's a characteristic of really true good leaders is that like they that. understand their weaknesses. Yes. And they're I not mean, impetuous. No. Yeah. And, and Madison had a lot of weaknesses. Physically, he had a lot yes. of weaknesses. But he focused on his strengths. Yes. And his mind was incredible. Mm. And his, you know, his, 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 his desire for knowledge mm. uh, really became a strong – a foothold for him to be the leader that we needed at yes. the time. Yes. Which is, uh, you know, again, amazing. And 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 he was the result of political parties, you know, the start mm-hmm. of the, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the Jefferson, what was it, the Republican, the, the Democrat, what was it? The, Demo- the Jeffersonian Republicans, yes. and then, of course, the yes. Federalists. And, of course, he got tied up in a lot of the mudsling. You and I have made the joke before, because of his size, his enemies called him the midget. I mean, yeah. they would start the mudslinging back and forth. We already see that. We watch campaign commercials today, and we're like, man, it's gotten so bad. It's always been bad. It's always, it's always been, been, bad. been bad. Which is why the voters need to understand that it's that they have the opportunity, they have the obligation of understanding who these people are that are that's running. Right. Do your research on the people. You're going to all be painted with a bad brush that's by their right. opposition. That's right. I mean, that's just the nature of the political world. You know, one thing that's interesting. And I know they used to always these man on the street interviews and in like the Tonight Show and the Late Show. But ask the average American who's the Secretary of State right now. Right. Who's the Vice President right now? Yeah. You know what amazes me though, and, and you probably see this a lot, is when we have political science students come in. They're majoring in, in poli sci. Like, hey, tell me who the um, Secretary of State is right now. Uh, tell me who the director of Homeland Security is right now. They have no idea. They have, they have no have, idea. They, and, and, and ask many people, students or not, who their U.S. senators are. Oh. Or name one U.S. senator. That's good. You know, it's – I don't want to get on this soapbox, but <laughs> we've got to be teaching this. We've got to be teaching yes. and understanding. Imagine these founding fathers knew the depth of, of the importance of a good government so well. Hmm. To have it be forgotten 200 years later would only put us on a fast track to 
absolute dis- destruction. And that's why we, and especially you, Caleb, as a professor in political science, have that passion to want to teach these students how important it is to learn from their history, yes. but also to see where they wanted this country to go and where it's come from. Yes. You know, we, we need to be nurturing, recognizing, and encouraging these young people to be these types of, 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 of leaders. A people devoid of their history are easily controlled. Yes. Karl Marx said that, and he tried to use that in his socialist regime, as we're seeing again today, the stripping yes. back of history so that we can do whatever we want. <laughs> Just erase it. Yes. Oh. Now, one God of the things we, we've, we've got to touch on is the dichotomy of Madison and slavery. And, and this has been yes. something we've talked about a lot with all the founding fathers, except Adams, who was Adams an ardent yep, abolitionist, yep. right? And yep. he took his ground strong and that brilliant mind working, his idea of natural laws and rights, reading people like Locke and, and all of those, he had the understanding that every man has natural born rights. So we're not to enslave people. Madison believes that but he holds slaves. And, and I've read so much on, on why did Madison do this. And, and, and the argument that's often used is by the time Madison wanted to free his slaves in Virginia, it was illegal to free your slaves. And if you did free your slaves, they could not stay in the state. So they would have had to go to a different state. A lot of the surrounding states had that. made wow. this illegal. So where are these men going to go? Now, to me, that's kind of a weak excuse in the sense of if you and I were in slavery, we could care less, right? right. If I'm the one enslaved, I don't care that Virginia, I mean, like we want our freedom, right? right. So... It almost seems as if Madison used this as a, as a tool of rationalization. And if we're being honest, give us enough time, we can rationalize anything. That's, that's the scary thing of human nature. Yes. That's why we need, and again, I'm going to kind of go on my, on my pastoral soapbox here for a minute, but that's why we need scripture. We need an objective standard. Apart from the word of God giving us an objective standard, I can rationalize anything. You can rationalize anything. <laughs> but, and the more intelligent you are, the more you can rationalize, yes. right? But if we have the word of God as an objective standard, now we have something to base our country and our laws on, which is what all the founding fathers believed. Washington, Adams, Madison, Jefferson, they all said that apart from having a biblical foundation, right. a we cannot people. rule. And right. how can you have virtue apart from the word of God? You, you can't. That's, and that was my pastoral soapbox. For, and that was a good moment. <laughs> but, but you're right about that dichotomy of Madison. You know? Yes. And, and after being in the presidency, he worked for, towards abolition. He did, while holding slaves. Yes. Which is just, you know... But I, again, I think it shows the fallibility of, of, of human nature, especially in the highest of our leaders. Yes. It exists, and we understand that. Yes. We don't want it there, but it is, and that doesn't mean that we have to get rid of them. Right. It means we have to help make them better and make us better along the way. I like that. I like that you said that we don't get rid of people who aren't perfect, because if you stop and think about it, one of the things we're moving to in, in, in kind of cancel culture is if you've ever done anything wrong, you're not fit to lead. Yeah. Well, except for Jesus Christ himself, Amen. we don't have anyone left. <laughs> no, we don't. We, and we have to be forgiving. Yes, we've all done stupid stuff in our past. And what we need are men who have recognized that, men and women who have recognized that, they've grown from that, and now they're ready to be better leaders. Because if we demand perfection, we're never going to get that out of a leader. I agree with you. Um, now, obviously, as we look at Madison, we look at Jefferson, slavery is not a little thing. That was wrong, and it should have been taken care of sooner. We, we shouldn't have had to go all the way to the Civil War to fight, to write, of course, under Lincoln, the Emancipation Proclamation, that finally said, hey, it's wrong to own another human being. It shouldn't have taken that long, right? We, we should have been able to, to get that together sooner. I think, you know, the economic impact of it was overwhelming. Yes. It, 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 it terrified it, the South. They it, were operating out of fear. Absolutely. And 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 then the, the, the North submitted to it until yes. such a time that it could no longer handle it. Yes, yes. And it was a tragedy. It was a tragedy. It was an And I tragedy. think that every one of these founding fathers saw that forthcoming. Madison and Jefferson both would uh, – was it Madison and Jefferson who speaking on the Missouri Compromise said it was a powder keg? Uh, that, yeah. would, that would destroy the country. And I think it was Madison. I'm not sure you can look that up later. And wow. We'll see. We'll get comments that, you know, we should have known that. <laughs> uh, here's, here's a quote I, I want to give you. I think you. I think you'll like this. This is what Madison said. 
The people are the only legitimate fountain of power, and it is from them that the constitutional charter under which the several branches of government hold their power and therefore is derived. Mm. The people are the only legitimate fountain of power. I don't know where along the way we stopped believing that in America. We almost have the idea that the government lets us do things or the government gives us power or the government's nice enough to do this for us. The government's supposed to work for us. Amen. The people are the only legitimate fountain of power. We are to have a representative government flowing forth to protect us. And somewhere along the way, that's been forgotten. That. Yeah, we, we, we went top down instead of from bottom yes. up. Yes. Maybe World War II and the idea of the New Deal and maybe uh, be. because of having to Voter apathy. Voter apathy and having to try to push through a, a world war and, and there was a lot of power changes. Maybe that's where we can kind of put the finger peg. I don't know. But something happened along the way where we forgot this idea that people are the only legitimate fountain of power. We need to take back our citizenship. Take ownership of our citizenship yes. because that's where, where, where it lies. Yes. And what and I love and what I love what you're doing, the ACPL you, you is doing, is that y'all are doing it saying, let's do this in a, in a civil way. We're Absolutely. going to do this through putting in leaders. We're going to do this through voting. We're going to do this through running. We're going to do this through through campaigning. We're going to bring about through new building leaders. relationships. Yes, and we can do it civilly. We Absolutely. can actually be friends with people we it's don't agree with. It's fascinating. It's challenging. It's fun. When yes. I can get in a, a good relationship with somebody of diverse thought, knowing that I'll never change their opinion because they got as much chance of changing my opinion as they do <laughs> yes. changing you know, mine. But we build the relationship. Yes. And then when you realize how much you have in common, you start working towards that goal of the greater good. Yes. And that's what the beauty of our system of government is. It's not the government telling us how we need to do things. No. It's us telling the government how we want to be yes. as a civilized, productive society. Yes. Madison understood this. And Dolly being his right hand in this, again, the ice cream socials, he was an avid chess player. He'd sit down and play chess with his enemy, political enemies. And they had this commonality, this friendship, this civility. And... Oh, we can have civility again, right? We watched the last few presidential debates, and it's just people screaming oh, and yelling awful. at each other. And then you go back, and you would have seen, you know, Madison sitting down and playing chess with his political opponent, Dolly serving them ice cream. I mean, just keeping that common humanity that allowed the system to keep working. And I think one of the greatest problems in our American system right now is the lack of civility. I know you do as well. I think that's what Absolutely. you really pledge so much of your time and energy to. Absolutely, and it's tough. <laughs> Because human emotions control us. Absolutely. Over 90% of our decisions are made through our subconscious, yes. which is already ingrained in us. Well, we can change that. That's but right. it takes practice. It and takes discipline. discipline. <laughs> and discipline. building those relationships. Yes. James Madison was very good at that. He was very good at that. And I think as we look at different individuals, we can learn from their leadership styles. We can learn from their personalities. And one thing we can learn from Madison, just take away, is the fact that he knew how to work with people he didn't always agree with. He knew how to be civil. He knew how to be friendly. And him and Dolly really knew how to work the, the chance of civility in order to accomplish a greater task. And we need that in leaders again. Amen to that. We need that in leaders again. This has been Presidents in Politics as we look at the life of James Madison. And we're looking forward to next week jumping into Monroe, actually. Interesting, yep. interesting president. Monroe Doctrine, great stuff there. Yes. So we will see you next week. Thank you.